0: This is uh, Kevin Page. I'm the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. My institute is a partner with something called the Recovery Project. It's a consortium of think tanks that includes Canada 2020, uh, led by Tim Barber, a very progressive think tank in Canada well known, and another very progressive think tank in Washington DC, the Center for Global Progress, led by Matt Brown. And so again, the purpose of this consortium is to pull together people from, from different spectrums, of political, non-political spectrums, economists, business people, really to start the conversation around um, the recovery. Like what happens, you know, we're in the middle of this crisis, this public health crisis. Uh, there are big policy issues in terms of how do we manage our way through it, but there's also going to be big policy issues on the other side of it. We're really very fortunate to have three incredible guests. And we're gonna make good use of their talent and experience and they cut across different domains which is perfect for the Recovery Project. I'm gonna start with Linda Nazareth who is very well known as an economist with a great expertise in labor markets and demographics. She's a principal um, of a relentless economics. She is a senior fellow for Economics and Population Change at the McDonnell Laurier Institute. I've read Linda's work over many, many years, particularly her work at the Globe and Mail. And, and she's got a book out that was published a couple of years ago, Work is Not a Place, Our Lives and Our Organization, The Post-Jobs Economy. It's the perfect kind of book we should be reading when we're trying to wrap our heads around what does the labor market look like after this post-COVID Pandemic, and then I'm going to just again introduce uh, a colleague, a friend, somebody that we, and many of us work for as public servants. The Honorable Scott Bryson. This is a man, uh, a politician from from Nova Scotia. And Scott is somebody who has experience, I guess, like Mr. Anderson, I'll introduce in a minute, in different political parties, both as a conservative, but then as a liberal, somebody that's worked uh, in opposition as a finance critic, who I remember working closely with when I was the party budget officer. But also, you know, I also a cabinet minister, a cabinet minister of Public Works and Government Services, and of course, a cabinet minister as you know, president of the Treasury Board. And you know, so Scott, in his current job, is what is it, the vice chair of Investment and Corporate Banking at the Bank of Montreal. So he's been kind of returned to his business roots. So Scott has, you know, has these sort of significant big circles in his life, and so we're just honored to have somebody like Scott because he brings. Uh, business and political experience in many dimensions. Then, you know, finally, we're very blessed to have Rick Anderson. Thank you so much, Rick, for joining uh, the webinar. Rick is uh, very well known. I mean, we've all watched Rick on on different media outlets, Um, but he, you know, he's been a political strategist for decades, and and you don't need to apologize for that, Rick. Um, But, you know, can you work for, like, like, like Scott, for for Liberal governments, for uh, the Reform Party, played you know, a crucial role through many, many campaigns, got a number of people elected across the country. We've all listened to you uh, over the years, to your public commentary, but I think, you know, there's also an aspect, you've run a number of businesses, you sit on boards of businesses, you are a principal with &. And we're just so lucky to have you, you know, Rick, you know, to be part of this discussion today. So the theme today that we want to discuss is restarting the economy. I think it's a, definitely a prescient topic. I mean, some people, I mean, we read the newspapers; they talk about easing the lockdown. Like we're not totally restarting the economy yet. We're not like telling people to to, to hop back to work uh, for the most part. But you know, you definitely see openings in certain sectors. You know, more openings now in retail sectors. Talking about opening in some schools across the country. Uh, some recreational places, parks, et cetera. But again, so how do we, like that connection between this crisis that we've lived in and, um, you know, to the recovery, to what happens after recovery is really, we have these three amazing panels today. So I think the first question that I would like to get at, and we could start with Linda, like, are we getting close to reopening the economy? What is your sense? Like we've had some advice uh, from public health officials, from the World Health Organization on a series of steps that are required to, to open the economy, like, are do you think are we getting close? Uh, and um, you know, what really concerns you as we kind of as we near that stage of kind of going back to work?
1: Yeah, I'm not even sure what reopening. We're talking about retail. You can shop online now, and when it does reopen, is anyone to feel any more comfortable going out there? Are we going to have leisure shopping like we did? Same with restaurants, it doesn't really call to me when I hear about wearing a mask and having plexiglass and wiping everything down four times during the meal. It's gonna take a long time before that seems like something I wanna do. I don't know, it's gonna be a stop start kind of process for a long time, even after we get the vaccine, there'll be a time before everyone's completely comfortable doing every single thing.
0: So, Scott, can we, like, we go to you? I know you're living in Montreal area in this, in, for most of the school year with, uh, with your family, with your daughters. Uh, you're spending some time in Nova Scotia as well. I mean, your sense, are, are we getting close to starting the economy? What are some of those critical
2: steps that we need to kind of get to before we really start to open things up? Governments right now are dealing with an unprecedented convergence of two crises, uh, the public health crises and the economic crises. And the public health crisis is kind of like trying to get the airplane landed safely. Uh, And the economic uh, and recovery project is kind of like getting the airplane off the ground again safely. And there's a real tension between the two because, you know, some of the uh, proponents of opening up the economy early on the basis of getting, uh, you know, protecting jobs and and prosperity, are also have to be quite cautious because any sustained recovery economically is contingent on the rate of infections continuing to go down uh, and on there not being a second or third wave. So there's a real tension between those two. And I think uh, as, as governments and financial institutions, Uh, respond to this uh it's it's important that we do everything we can to deal with that public health one thoroughly because there will be no recovery until we we have addressed that uh you know adequately the other thing is to you know to to linda's point in jurisdictions that have reopened or are reopening the participation rate in for instance retail shopping or restaurants that kind of thing people going out has actually been quite low uh, compared to before this. So this could be very much uh, a new normal of what is being referred to as the 90% economy with some sectors taking years and perhaps never getting back to where they were before. Thank you very much, Scott.
0: So Rick, like your sense of uh, restarting the economy the kind of steps that we need to take Um, maybe building on Linda and Scott's points like how do you are we close and again you're you know I should let our listeners know that you know we're we're talking to you and you're in Vancouver.
3: You know it's a good question I I think that um, the interplay between the pandemic crisis the the virus and the economic crisis um, as uh, as Scott was just talking about are really important here and I don't think it's just a question of one takes off and the next one lands, they're gonna be interacting with each other. To the point you were just making there, Kevin, I think in, in eight of the 10 provinces, we are actually pretty close to the point where there's so few cases and so few new cases that the next stages of uh, what the French call deconfinement, uh, which is a, one of those great French words, better than what we found for it in English, I think so far, uh, that the first steps of that could possibly be uh, started now and here in BC in Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, in most of the, at Atla- all four of the Atlantic provinces, um, but not really in Ontario and Quebec. Um, and maybe even in those places, you could regionalize this down to not in Montreal, but perhaps in the rest of Quebec. So we're at that point where, you know, uh, kind of here in Vancouver, uh, keeping people uh, sort of immobilized is starting to lose its kind of salience because there's not that many cases around us to bump into. Uh, However, as we open the door uh, to let people, you know, get out and be more mobile, I think what's going to be really important, you can see most of the provinces are talking in this in these terms of staging that so that we continue to try to keep people away from each other. We avoid density, we avoid crowds. Uh, So if you, so I think restaurants are going to be uh, subject to you know 50% capacity limits or something like that, airlines more or less the same thing. I think the last, I'm about as frequent a flyer as you're gonna find. Uh, The last thing I really wanna do right now is get back on an airplane, particularly that crowded United one, that full United one, United Airlines one I saw in the news this morning. Uh, You know, that's just asking for trouble. So I think we're gonna have to find a new normal uh, in stages while we proceed into um, moving out a little bit more going to retail stores that have been closed and so on but in limited numbers and in constrained fashion and and while we see how far we can take that before we have uh, new cases uh, breaking out and losing control Uh, there's a story that everybody who's concerned about this question how can we reopen safely uh, should look at and it's what happened in South Korea over the last couple weeks uh, where they they started to end the lockdown and opened up um, restaurants and bars, including nightclubs, and one person went to two, three, three nightclubs on one night, and that in infect, infected people, which has turned into 40 known positives and 7,200 uh, contacts that now need to be traced, which are going to yield more positive cases. So, they've reclosed uh, the bars in South Korea, and those folks are way ahead of Canada in terms of understanding the test, trace, isolate regime. That is, is the way to hopefully the way to reopen the economy in a, in a safe fashion. Thank
2: you, Rick. Go ahead, Scott. Confidence is going to be incredibly important and the return of confidence to uh, uh, citizens and consumers. Um, you've got you know, people cautious about their health and their kids' health. You've got people who are precariously employed, finding themselves more precariously employed today as a result of COVID-19. You've got personal debt levels in Canada at a record level, $1.60 for every dollar of annual income, so people aren't able to, consumers aren't inclined to leverage further or aren't able to leverage further. So I think this question of confidence, uh, and I think it's really important that governments at all levels continue to have people's backs. Uh, This is a time when getting through this requires a level of confidence that people no, they can depend on governments uh, being there and helping them through what is a very scary period. If, if, if you're an American making less than $20,000 per year before this crisis, you were twice as likely to lose your job than somebody making over 80,000. So the level of fear and uncertainty for people who are already in in tough financial straits is going to increase. And one of the things we're going to have to watch coming out of this is that this does not, uh, that we, we are aware of the pressures on inequality that could emerge from this and that that could lead to all kinds of unintended consequences in terms of public policies responding to political pressures that could actually be quite damaging to the economy. So I think we've got to keep an eye on equality issues and not allow this to see a, a market increase in inequality as a result of COVID-19. Thank you, Scott. So if I, I'll go just to Linda now, just to pick up on
0: Scott's point of confidence and change. And so you are one of Canada's sort of leading experts that you know looks at the future of work and labor markets. And like we, you know, on Friday we got these almost shocking numbers from Statistics Canada. I mean, even though some were were expecting it, like we saw in basically in two months, with the Labour Force Survey release for the April data, we saw that we, you know, we shed some three million jobs, and you know we saw unemployment go up, you know, if you know at least in in one month by you know a million and a half, which is like the you know the population of you know of the city of Ottawa. So like, do you, from a point of view of somebody that looks at these trends of work, do you find, like, how does that impact of this higher unemployment affect confidence? And will, like, as we kind of work our way through to restarting the economy, will it, it will there be changes that you could accelerate uh, that you were kind of tracking going into, in, you, know, you know, into the, 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 the pandemic?
1: There's a lot of threads to what's going on, Kevin. You know, it's really crazy that we had millions of jobs lost in the month of April, and yet the average wage went up above 10% than they were a year ago. What happened is the jobs lost were those lower paid jobs, as Scott was alluding to earlier. So there's a lot of people who've been protected from this. My question is, will they continue to be protected? Because most full-time jobs, most jobs for highly educated people particularly, are still there. If that changes, we go from recession to a really deep recession because those are the people who are holding up the economy to some extent while they can. Um, that could be the next wave of that. So that really concerns me from a business cycle perspective. In terms of the trends we saw beforehand, yeah, we did see a move to the gig economy or the Hollywood model—sort of people coming in to do one job, leaving. I'm not necessarily against that. I, I think that could be an efficient way to work. However, we need to build in some kind of cushion for them when they're not working, or we need to educate ourselves how to save and get used to this model. And I don't think anybody was used to it when the economy got shut down so we have a sort of crisis there and as scott says this will make inequality much more of a thing i talked a lot beforehand not just of income in, in uh, disparities but sort of as being the next really big crisis for us and we're right there we didn't think a pandemic would take us there but that's what it was
0: thanks lena so if i could go to rick know yeah, man you bring a lot of experience advising governments uh, advising businesses running your own businesses over you know a number of different decades I mean we're seeing something like you know you and I have not seen nobody's really seen that's like unless you were around sometime you know in the late early nineteen hundreds and experienced the the Spanish influenza so like in terms of the shock to the economy I've heard the metaphor like we're literally putting the economy in a freezer and so then at some point in time we have to take this economy out of the freezer people talking about like declines in gdp in the second quarter of 20% you know and you know, we're already now we're experiencing double digit unemployment rates like you know how do you think the government and you've talked about this tension that in managing that balance between public health and and then, you know in kind of that connection to kind of growing the economy outside and and you know are we going to have a hard time taking this economy out of the freezer
3: well that's the uh, you know trillion dollar question right now um, and of course confidence in this context means not just the usual consumer confidence or investor confidence or you know economic confidence um, that causes people to invest or to buy a house or to you know to to, to purchase uh, purchase things or to go out and consume services and so on confidence is also about safety that that the rules that we're going to have in place or the practices we will follow uh in society will keep will continue to keep us safe if as we try to get us out of this decrease as you put it um, and to pick up on Linda's point, I think it's uh, quite incredible what we're learning in this process about, uh, in some ways about the resilience of our, uh, of our economy. Uh, I know that's kind of a bizarre thing to be saying right now, but, uh, th- think of how many people actually are working. Uh, the unemployment numbers are of course shocking, uh, and that's, we need to fix that. But, you know, all of us who are doing this, um, are probably working today uh, in the capacities that we usually work at, not in a place that we usually do it. We're working from home. We're kind of immobilized, as I said. Um, uh, But, you know, many of the people who work in the services sector are continuing to work. I can call my lawyer today. I can call my banker. I can, you know, do banking by email, online, and so on. The things we're taking for granted that are continuing to work are kind of amazing. I mean, the telecoms that support... The conversation we're having, the energy systems that keep the lights on, um, you know, the, uh, the grocery stores and the whole food supply chain, uh, the whole energy infrastructure uh, that keeps things working. Uh, most, most of government or parts of government that we interact with and need right now are certainly working. Um, you know, the finance sectors, insurance and so on, investment markets, they're all kind of functioning, not like normal. Uh, universities and schools have shifted over to online platforms. I mean, there's Humongous changes, some of which I think are going to stick with us—not um, in a dire way as they have, you know, been imposed on us uh, during the last couple of months—but I think some of these changed behaviors and changed practices are going to are going to stick around. Uh, you know, the delivery services are expanding. Amazon is expanding in the middle of this. Uh, you know, so and more people are getting used to talking to their kids and grandkids by Zoom uh, than ever would have really tried to do that. Uh, You know, just sixty days ago. So we're we're subjecting society to an undesired uh, forced change. Some of which is going to change, going to going to stick to us in terms of new practices, and uh, some of which is also leading to new inequities uh, that uh, of the sort that Linda was talking about. You know, I, I think it's bizarre that Walmart can stay open whereas other clothing retails and department stores can't because Walmart has a grocery section in it and the rules say if you're a grocery store, you know, et cetera. That's an inequity uh, that, you know, ultimately we kind of need to, if we're going to be in this boat for only, you know, a few more weeks, then I guess we don't need to fix it. We just need to get out of this boat. But if we're going to be in some version of this through a protracted period, maybe as some people suggest, waves of recurrence of uh, of outbreaks and so on, then we're going to have to improve some of these rules uh, for how, uh, you know, how we decide what stays open and how it operates and what what services we can use and so on, and to deal with the inequities that are resulting from that. But I I just, I think the changes that are are underway are
0: quite profound and some of them are lasting. Thank you very much, Rick. So Scott, you know, you've sat in around cabinet tables for many years and in different portfolios, and certainly as president of the Treasury Board, all these financial portfolios. Now we're seeing these, these incredible shifts in numbers. Um, you know, we've no one could have imagined a year or two ago, we'd be talking about direct fiscal contributions, $150 billion range, hundreds of billions of dollars of liquidity sports, you know, deficits, you know, north of $200 billion dollars. Like, you know, in, in, at what point, like, do you start with a cabinet minister, a finance minister, a president of the Treasury Board, start to think about, okay, so what does this look like on the other side? How am I going to manage this? Or like, do you just sort of, we'll, we'll wait till we get through the public health crisis? Well, you know, we, you know, we can afford this. Like, how do you start to position government, you know, uh, on, on the other side of the pandemic?
2: Well, this is a very different crisis from 2008. But one of the things that it has in common with 2008 from a Canadian perspective is that our fiscal situation as a country uh, is actually quite strong today, and it it was also in in 2008. We benefited from that. The other the advantage we have today uh, is that long-term borrowing costs I think are around 0.6 percent uh, as opposed to around three percent back in 2008, so that's an advantage we have today. A disadvantage uh, we have today, we don't have uh, oil prices post-2008 really helped the Canadian economy. I don't think anyone really expects that to be as big a factor uh, today. Um, On the fiscal side, I think governments right now uh, need to spend, they need to make sure that, that citizens and businesses of all sizes uh regain confidence to get through this but at some point we're going to have to wean people and businesses off this funding and that is going to be the tricky part we're going to see in the you know in in the end of august people are going to have to start paying are going to have to pay their taxes those have been deferred uh mortgage interest is being deferred for a lot of of canadians uh, a lot of Canadians and a lot of small businesses were highly indebted and were precariously financed heading into this. Um, it's possible that over the next several months they'll get through this, but at some point there, there could very well be a spike in personal and uh, business failures and bankruptcies. Um, so this question of confidence is going to be really uh, critically Uh, important. Now, some of the trends that that, uh, Linda has written on and Rick was referring to, for instance, the adoption of digital to enable remote working. Uh, There's probably been more workplace and digital transformation in the last eight weeks in big organizations like banks than would have been possible in two years under any other circumstance. As Canada's first Minister of Digital Government, we I fixed all that, Rich. didn't you remember? I mean, you know, if, if, it just took a while. fine. If every, everything's fine now, but but the the uh, reality is though, tr- things that were already occurring, but more gradually, like digital transformation, workforce trans uh, transformation, robotics, automation, they're all happening gradually. Now they're happening at warp speed, and that is where the disruption comes in. And disruption makes people feel very uncomfortable, but at the same time, it could result in a much more efficient economy. Now, the challenge we have from a public policy perspective is governments seeking to insulate people from these changes will, for instance, put conditions on funding that goes to businesses that, you know, could, they'll be tempted to do things like requiring businesses to maintain previous levels of of employment in order to qualify for some of these benefits. I would argue that that could be a bad idea because in fact you want Canadian businesses to be efficient and effective. And where we should be focusing is in helping Canadians get through this. The serve is part of it. I think we're gonna have a robust discussion and we should have a robust discussion around guaranteed annual income. Uh, and what that means in a current context, the, uh, the working income tax benefit and the Canada Child Benefit were in some ways trial projects uh, of, of, that were, in fact, part of and contributed to, for all intents and purposes, uh, a guaranteed annual income. The CERB is a form of guaranteed annual income. But the point is, governments giving people confidence to get through this. Uh, it will really help restart the economy, but also prevent a political dynamic where citizens demand what would be economically dangerous ideas uh, that would actually be very interventionist and damaging to business confidence, ultimately. So I think, I think it, it we really need to make sure we're there for people and help them get through this, particularly the most vulnerable. Thank you Scott Linda, so
0: you written on you know the, the way work has been changing in the lead up to the post pandemic crisis and you know there was transformations that Scott alluded to were taking place like what is your sense like will these will these will these transformations will will, they, will there be this process of acceleration in terms of change over the next you know um, number of months until we get a vaccine do you think and what would do you see, do you see the what do you see the role for governments and, and for educational sectors in order to promote healthy change in this regard?
1: Yeah, it's a really difficult time, Kevin, because it makes a lot of sense to move to automation. We know that frontline workers are in danger. And we know there's been grocery workers infected. We know that in the U.S. particularly, the transit workers who have died of COVID, didn't need to. You could have had automation doing some of those jobs. Same with the grocery stores. We know there's technology now that will come in and stack shelves. And I think stores are gonna to move to that very quickly. Just to take the grocery example, you're gonna see it in lots of other sectors. That might make the workers safer. However, it will also take jobs. And that is going to be, a very difficult line to be on either side of politically or just in terms of being an employer. But what do you want? You want to keep people safe and say, we won't put you on the front line at the same resource needs. And that's, you know, going to be difficult in terms of government, should they be going to a guaranteed income? I looked at numbers on this before the pandemic several times. I never saw numbers that made sense, that made it something we could do long term. Uh, If we were going to do that we'd all have to buy into saying we're going to have fewer services, maybe we're not going to have libraries, maybe we're not going to have a lot of things we take for granted. You have to pay for those because we have to guarantee this income. Uh, Maybe we're going to be taxed more. Those are not easy things and if we decide we're going to go there, this it's a very very powerful statement. Are we accepting there are some people who are not going to be in the labor force long term? who are just not employable anymore. I don't wanna go there. I would like to think that we stop that from happening. It means a lot of educational initiatives early on. It means constant retraining, may mean companies, not just governments, but companies saying that they make a commitment to retrain people, even if it costs money and even if it makes a lot of effort. Canada's never been great at retraining. North America never has been. It's easier to get the right people and let, let go of the people you don't like. But we may have to change our mindset.
0: Yeah. So, Rick, like on that point that where Linda just sort of left us, um, like, you know, the conversations are going to shift from these fiscal supports dealing with the public health care crisis to recovery. And um, so like, if you're advising governments, uh, Canada and you know, a lot of con- other countries in the same boat, we're now dealing with double-digit unemployment rates. Like, how would you be shaping these sort of recovery package? Would unemployment and uh, training be a big part of your advice? Would public investment programs be a big part of uh, your advice? Like how, what kind of advice would you be providing to governments as they start to shift their focus to recovery? I would
3: shift the focus sooner rather than later, because I think the uh, I think the income support programs, both uh, for individuals uh, and for businesses, the wage subsidy, the payroll subsidy programs for businesses, I think they've been very effective, uh, but they're not sustainable in the long run. I mean, I think uh, Scott's right, we can survive what we've done, but we shouldn't let it become uh, a solid state. Uh, because eventually we will run out of uh, the ability to print money, and we'll, you know, end up with wheelbarrows of uh, cash to buy bread. Um, you know, that's what will happen if we all carry on down that road indefinitely. So we know we can't do that. It's common sense. It's also economic sense. So we need to start figuring out the economy, or the recovery. We need to figure out how to get people into it safely, and not to rush people into uh, an unsafe, uh, a, a re- an economic recovery. That's happening too quickly, and it just you know prompts a recurrence, a faster and a more severe recurrence of the virus, and gets us back to where we are right now. Uh, I'm very worried about the United States in this regard. I just think that uh, you know the president, actually, ironically, because we don't you know usually look to him for very well thought through public policy, if I can put it that way, uh, actually has a pretty good you know list of criteria for when states should be unlocking the uh, unlocking their economies again. Uh, But almost nobody's paying any attention to what Washington is saying. And they're just going ahead and doing their own thing. And it's going to turn out badly, I'm sure, in some places. So we need to not have that happen. But what we should really also be doing is thinking about what the shape of the recovery should look like. I mean, one is, you know, the pace of it. And, you know, obviously, as fast as we can safely do is, you know, important for individuals and businesses and the economy at large and so on. But also, we should not uh, get ourselves into the mindset of, you know, we just need to get back to where we were. Where we were was a country that had lagging productivity, you know, deeply unresolved issues with indigenous Canadians that led us in January to railroads not operating. I mean, this only seems like a good place to get back to because we're not there anymore. Uh, We need to kind of get to someplace different. And what we we should use our imagination while we've got some time here to think. Except it doesn't really feel like we get much time to think right now in the middle of this. But theoretically, we're not working as hard, although it really doesn't feel that way. To think about what would we be doing differently if we had a chance once in a while to change things. Uh, and you, you know, we're going to spend. I'm sure governments are going to spend as they are already spending serious money helping get the eco- economic recovery often in certain sectors and so on, and and to reshape retail. Uh, to make it a safe environment for people to be in, and restaurants and so on. Uh, you know, what other changes can we buy as we come out of this thing? We used to talk about, you know, in healthcare reform. You know, if you're going to put more money into healthcare, make sure you're buying some change. What kind of change do you want to buy? Better services, better outcomes, shorter waiting lists. whatever it is. You know, what is it that, from the economic situation we're in, from going from where we are right now, which is I don't know, maybe 75% of our economy operating, or 80%. To back to us you know eventually a hundred would we just want it to be exactly as it was or what would we want to change if we could do that without impairing the economic recovery which is a a, a complication I I agree you know the government talks about let's make sure where we can to use it to encourage the green you know the, the clean energy transition I think that's a good idea but you know we don't want to slow down the recovery in doing that. We want to shape the recovery in that direction not without losing pace. So, I mean, you know, the, the, the kind of work, uh, things that, uh, workplace things that uh, Linda's talking about, we can all think of lots of things that weren't perfect before. And as we kind of come out of this, is there anything we can do to help improve things? So we actually, end uh, you know, in a better place than we were at.
0: Thank you. So Scott, do you, I mean, as a former president of the Treasury Board, you were involved in budget making. Um, when do you think we might see a budget in this environment? And what kind of timeframes would they have around a budget? And what kind of vision would you be painting, as Rick alluded to, for the economy? Like, what is this? Like, what would you be telling Canadians they could look for in 2021 22? I'm pretty sure the finance minister is listening
2: right now. Absolutely. And uh, I'll announce the date of the budget right now. No. Um, I, In fact, I. I obviously don't know the date of the budget, but obviously there's going to be, when you're dealing with the $240 billion of, uh, of spending in response to COVID-19, very important spending, and I support it actually, uh, and agree with Rick, it's the right, you know, I mean, you're, you're going to have probably a 14% deficit as a percent of GDP, up from around 1% this year. Uh, and a a significant increase to our debt as as a percentage of GDP. We're still going to be in in good shape compared to our peer countries, Uh, but it's a significant and important investment. I don't know know, when they'll they'll bring forth a budget. The one thing I would say going forward, as this government and future governments deal with the fiscal hangover uh, that results from this, I think we're going to have to look at alternative ways to finance a lot of the things we need as a country we have massive infrastructure needs that are essential to our productivity as a a country i do not think we can rely on the taxpayer to fund those uh and all three levels of government if you if you consider the fiscal capacity of all three levels of government combined Those would pale in comparison to the infrastructure needs we have as a country. Uh, I am glad to see Michael Sabia now involved as chairman of the Infrastructure Bank of Canada. I hope that uh, we see reform of infrastructure finance in Canada to adopt some of the Australian model of infrastructure finance, that we see our pension funds and other global pension funds and institutional investors Uh, their expertise and capital harnessed to build better communities and a more productive economy. I do not think we need to further um, uh, burden the taxpayer uh, for all our infrastructure needs. I think we should get with the program and have a very robust public-private partnership environment where our world-class pension funds can build world-class infrastructure for Canadians. Thank you, Scott. That definitely, again, it sounds like there's
0: opportunities for transformation. So I've got lots of questions from the audience, terrific questions. And I I can maybe put one to Linda. In fact, I have this one here that was directed right for Linda. And it's a a question from Karen Tischler. And she says she's an advocate for professionals trying to return to paid work. She also hosts a podcast. And she asked you, Linda, do you think the COVID-19 situation will result in a much more interest in work sharing? to reduce layoffs, none of this more flexible work methods like job sharing may become more mainstream for employers as it already is the case in Europe. Like, Can we see some European trends in Canada in the near future with respect to work sharing?
1: That's interesting. You know, It has been on the table every so often in Canada. It's never really found its footing. It's, I think, more difficult now because it's not like most professional jobs are 35 or 40 hours a week, they're kind of all the time. So to say that you're only doing half of that, you're doing 20 hours of it, is that much more difficult. Having said that, I think people would say yes. I think in every survey when people ask about time and, you know, what would you trade off for, for a little bit more time, there are people who say, yeah, I would give up some income for that. So I'd like to see it on the table. Um, having said that, the caveat to that is a lot of people just can't afford to give up any income. And they're living to the extent of their incomes. And the amount of people who can say, I I will work part-time is unfortunately lower than it could be. So after this crisis, I think it'll be a real question, who can afford to take less?
0: Another question I I can direct to Rick, it's none of these questions are easy. I should let all the panelists know. I'm (laughs) sure glad that I don't have to answer any of them. So there's a question from uh, Sotos Petreds and Sotos says, should we, and this again, a question for Rick, should we look at industries in decline and cut the cord to forced redirection? The government has provided wage and rent subsidies that may not prevent insolvency in the longer term anyway. Wouldn't those resources be better applied to building new businesses and industries? So like Rick, how do we manage this adjustment?
3: Well, that's a terrific question. And it's,
0: it's what I was alluding to, um, uh,
3: but more specific. You you know, what could we do that we uh, where can we do things that we actually end up better uh, off than we were going into this thing? Uh, I mentioned that we, you know, one of the things Canadians don't like to talk about is we have lagging productivity as a country, and that leads to lagging competitiveness with some of our trade partners. Uh, You know, so and one of the answers to that is, unfortunately for Linda, automation and innovation uh so you know there's there's an inner interplay there with uh with uh, employment although i think in on the whole you step back from it automation has increased our wealth and, and increased employment increased increased incomes but that does, on the whole doesn't mean for every individual so we've got dislocation um the um the, the point the question though is a good one and people call it uh creative destruction uh you know the, the process of industries that go into decline Uh, that are usually accelerated by downturns in the economy. So what was already happening becomes more pronounced uh, when you get into the kind of situation we're in. And governments could make the mistake, policymakers could make the mistake of saying, um, as I think sometimes we're a little too prone to, everybody needs help equally. Well, you know, if you're really in a declining industry or a a failing company, um, we probably don't want to just prop that up. Uh, we need to find a different solution to those particular cir- circumstances. Uh, it, it goes to the shape of the economic policy side of this. You know, how do we accelerate the, the the things that we think have got the longest term potential and accelerate transitions where we can, uh, not just abandon people to the fates of uh, you know economic nature, uh, but but also not just treat er- everything like a level playing field and you know say everybody qualifies for the same thing. Uh, when uh, you know the companies that are on growth spurts could probably do more on growth trends could probably do more with the same amount of public support than companies that are on declining trends. I know that sounds harsh, uh, and you know if there is declining trends that you allow to kind of go through a decline and, and transition, we need to have transition uh, policies that will support that. We can't just abandon them. But I, equally, I think it would be a, I think it would be a mistake to miss the opportunity to accelerate good things uh, more strongly than just act like a a safety net for everything equally. Thank you,
0: Rick. A question for Scott, question I think, Scott, you're well-suited to answer. How will massive government spending, which you've alluded to, both federally and provincially affect future credit ratings and interest rates for government borrowing?
2: As I mentioned earlier, um, Canada is actually in an enviable fiscal position. But you know, and and we can uh, come out of this. I think with an anomalous bump in uh, deficit as a percentage of GDP for next year, uh, and get back to a more normal fiscal framework going forward. And I think we'll, you know, I think we're we're fine where we're going to end up in terms of of debt as a percentage of GDP when this is over, particularly at uh, long-term borrowing rates right now. I do think we have to be vigilant in terms of the integrity of the fiscal framework. And I do think we have to look at alternative ways to build the things we need. I mentioned on infrastructure uh, earlier, and I agree with what Linda said earlier regarding the importance of skills and training to get people through this. And, and, um, you know, there has been, I think, quite an increase in people's individual productivity over the last few weeks as a result of some of the technological shift that people individually and collectively have embraced um, and i think it would be a mistake for government to um try to move people and companies back to what they were prior to this exactly um, for instance it is conceivable that there will be fewer people required for large parts of our labor market, and instead of incenting companies to keep on the same uh, workforce they had prior, uh, and effectively disincenting them to invest in technological transformation which could enhance productivity, uh, I think we should, you know, in as Rick said, creative destruction, Schumpeter, bring you know that kind of principle in allow it to happen, in fact, encourage it to happen. But as a backstop, making sure that we are there for our people. And and that is where, and, and I, I don't believe, you know, I, I'm not saying bring in a guaranteed annual income. I, I'm saying that now is probably the best time we've ever had to have that discussion. And I bet you if we looked at all the funding, we're, we're, all the money we're spending federally and provincially in terms of social investments, um, I bet you uh, all those programs and the redundancy and overlap and inefficiency and administrative costs and include the Canada Child Benefit, with all of these things together, I bet you the amount of money we're spending right now in aggregate uh, would probably give us enough to actually have a, a, a be quite close to providing what would be, for all intents and purposes, a guaranteed annual income. But until people have confidence, and until they really feel that people, that the government and ha- has their backs on this, I think the recovery will be sh- slow. So I think there's an economic imperative to take good care of the most vulnerable people right now. Thank you, Scott. So Linda, another
0: uh, question that I think is directed towards you and, and all the work that you've, you've done in recent years about, again, looking at labor markets. This one starts out kind of where Scott left off earlier's discussion about the kind of the fiscal stresses that will exist in the nation. Uh, it's but, it's and, but the question moves towards how the relationship between uh, executives and employees and obviously in recent years You've written about this. We've seen, you know, inequalities grow, and, and we've seen uh, relatively large pay, you know, payments go to the kind of the top one percent, large, you know, income and wealth shifts. So the question is, one of the issues remains the excessive tax avoidance by large corporations, people call the tax gap, and the proportion of executive bonuses versus employee compensation. Is there something that can happen through? You know this uh you know the shutdown of businesses and like and 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 the lockout of workers like could we end up in a different place in that relationship between you know those income gaps between workers and the people that run these big corporations
1: yeah interesting question you know i'm not against productivity i'm in fact, I've really been distressed by Canada's productivity figures. So anything that lifts it is a good thing to me, including spending on technology, spending on investment. My concern though, and it does come back to the workers, is that over the past few years or past decade or so, it seems that we've had a decoupling between gains in GDP and productivity and what workers get. And that's kind of new. We've always seen them move together. The economy does better, everybody does it better. So something's different this time around. In terms of, you know, how we come out of this crisis and whether this brings executives and the lowest paid workers closest together, closer together, um, I would like to think that we'd see some of that. It would certainly be really bad PR if we saw huge executive bonuses this year for closed or shutting down or the like. I don't know if I actually believe that will happen. But as I said earlier, we saw a 10% gain in wages because the losses in jobs have been in those who make the least amount of money. And I, I think it would be naive to think that we're just going to close all these gaps. I think if anything, we're probably going to end up with gaps being larger.
0: So more work to do and, and who, maybe that pushes us more into the kind of programs that Scott was talking about in terms of, you know, basic income style programs to continue that progress. So, Rick, I have a question from Bruce Hyman, a well-known Canadian. He, first, he thanks everybody in the panel for a thoughtful conversation. Thanks, Bruce. And, but the question, Rick, for you is, like, and maybe for others, how do you think the Canada-U.S. border should be normalized and return to accepting non-essential travelers? Both countries agreed to closure for non-essential travel. Is it necessary to have both countries agree on how they will reopen? How do you think this will play out? You travel a lot. Oh, well, that's a very important question. You know, I alluded to what seems to be developing
3: in the states, which is a lot of states uh, relaxing their, uh, their restrictions while there's still pretty significant uh, active outbreaks going on, um, particularly still in the northeast, uh, Connecticut and Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and so on. I don't think it's going to have as dire a consequence in the southern states. I think there is a climate-related effect to this, at least that's what I read from the experts about that. Uh, but I think the northern tier states have, have got to be careful. Of course, those are the ones that are right on our border, um, and uh, so Canadians are going to be nervous about opening that border too quickly. I think is the basic truth of it, uh, unless we see that uh, the outbreaks have really settled down in this, the you know in the places where people are traveling to and from in the United States. Um, you know, it's already it's stayed open for essential goods and cargo and essential services and so on and. A certain of diplomats and journalists and so on but the um but uh, i i'm not sure that there's a big ambition on the canadian side of that border to really open it up a whole lot more until we see um it goes back to the earliest discussion we had in this uh, webinar uh, scott was talking about the the the, pan, the pandemic and the recovery i mean if, if all if opening the border leads us to have a, a, in canada uh, a more rapid escalation in new cases i think people would be Against it, and I think they're not sure that that's not the case today.
0: So, actually, another question, Scott. Like you've talked a few times about um, p- potential for policy change, you know, in governments. Um, there's a few questions from our, our listeners about pharmacare. So, I mean, the question basically is, what about a national pharmacare program? This is a question from Cheryl Anne A re- resolution was passed in the House of Commons unanimously on March 12, 2020, but then everything was suspended will there be an appetite for the sort of these sort of bigger ticket items like national pharmacare in addition to work you know you know not work sharing but or income work sharing and maybe more income support type programs where where do you think national pharmacare will will be in 2021
2: 22 it's difficult to say and it may shape what kind of national pharmacare we end up seeing um there are proponents calling for a totally you know publicly funded universal system that doesn't involve private uh the private sector um that has a huge fiscal impact and uh i think you know i think quite possibly if you look at what the real issue is is the people who don't have coverage now so finding a way to help those people who don't have coverage uh without disrupting uh the what the, those people uh, who already have coverage may be more, more uh, cost effective and still achieve the public policy objective. So um, uh, I, I personally uh, uh, would like to see the government explore that kind of approach, which would be less uh, where we end up, but it, it's, it's difficult to say. There will be those who want to see a 100% public universal system. I think we should just be pragmatic and help the people who need need coverage, uh, and and recognize that there is a private sector um, and efficient delivery model that's actually working quite well for a lot of Canadians, and allow that to continue to do its thing.
3: I think that's really important. Uh, you know, if you ranked all the different things you could ask governments to possibly do that would improve the quality of Canadian lives, um, creating a new universal pharmaceutical problem, PharmaCare program, would probably be low on that list compared to some of the other things that we've been talking about here. How do we close the gap uh, for workers who are being displaced in this economy? How do we help people transition to new models of working, work, work sharing or you know, being trained for, for post automation work and so on? Uh, how do we close the gap in terms of rural access to uh, the kind of high speed uh, internet that's necessary for what we're doing here today? Uh, so that, that works more. Like there's a whole long list of things that we're, I think, are coming into focus a little bit as a result of the circumstance we're in. Uh, you know, with the income supports being, I think, probably at the top of that list. And on the PharmaCare side, we should really just concentrate on addressing the gaps rather than overhauling the system that's kind of 85% working. Uh, we've got other things that are so much more important that really should be the social contract between the wealthiest in the country and the lowest. Is not as in dire shape in Canada as it is in our neighbor to the south, um, but that doesn't mean it's not an issue. Uh, we should figure out what we can do about that that doesn't create disincentives to work. I have always liked the idea, some kind of you know guaranteed basic income idea, but but I understand that it needs to be done in an intelligent way, you know, of course our lifetime, you know, we've seen the discussion go from universality for these kind of programs to really targeting from a, you know, a baby bonus that everybody got, whether they were wealthy or not uh, wealthy wealthy or, or disadvantaged to child tax benefits that are highly targeted and have had a lot to do with, uh, with raising, uh raising income standards for uh lowest lowest paid canadians lowest income canadians we should continue on down those roads and we should continue being creative in public policy uh, to support people who uh, are at the edge of the workforce and, you know prone to being dislocated when there's any kind of change whether it's a recession or technology changes and so on figure out what to do with folks like that Either it's mobility or training or work sharing or you know what we can do what we can do with public policy and income programs. Sorry, Linda, it's really your your area, so I'll just toss the ball towards you. But the um, but I think I think we should be open minded about this. It's part of the creative destruction discussion. Uh, discussion. Uh, you know, what can we do that makes our society, What are we learning from this, and what are we our accumulated knowledge before and during this crisis that that we can apply to improving things in the future?
0: So maybe we could end with almost where where Rick left off and just a final question, we're down to about you know three minutes and maybe a minute each um, and we can start with Linda. There was a question from the audience that picked up on something that Rick had said earlier about the, the possibilities for profound you know lasting changes and you know we had a global financial crisis 12 years ago yeah, uh, it certainly brought some significant changes in the financial industry, our understanding of risk and regulation. Like coming out of this, this is a you know a global health pandemic. Like, What do you think, you know, one or two sort of profound you know changes that we might experience could be in the workplace or could be elsewhere. We'll start with Linda and then we'll go to Scott and then we'll end with Rick because this is question, I almost started with Rick. What are those profound changes that we might look forward to five or 10 years from now?
1: I'm going to stick to work. I think we're going to question every single thing about it. The setup we had, which was everyone goes to the office, goes to the factory, made sense for a number of years. It doesn't have to make sense now. We don't have to go there, but we have to change everything about our thinking because work gave us somewhere to go. It gave us social interaction. Uh, We're structured around meetings. We're all together. Now we're going to have a sufficient way to do that for companies, for the environment, for families, for society. Everything's on the table. I think we could come out in a healthier and better place, but it'll be difficult to get there.
0: Okay, see that Scott, that's, uh, Linda's not a politician, but she knows how to kind of, you know, instill optimism that positive change is coming. And okay, you are a politician. Like what profound changes can we look forward to? Obviously, my hairline's not going to change. You've already criticized
2: that, or before the show even got started. Well, it's just that that some of us have to spend more time thinking about our hair for these video things than you do. That's all. A couple of things. One is that there are positives coming out of this uh, terrible crisis that we should not ignore. uh, In terms of the impact on our efficiency. Uh, and potential strengthening or improvement of our quality of life by being able to work from home more frequently, uh, have more flexibility in terms of workforce or workplace transformation. Um, I think that you know long-term costs for companies could actually be reduced. You'll see a change in terms of how we approach things like commercial real estate. Uh, it's going to have an impact on business travel. Uh, all of those, so, so I, my, my caution would be in terms of government programs is to not try to slow down those changes because some of those were already occurring before this pandemic. Uh, this is simply uh, accelerating uh, these changes uh, and they could actually have some positive impact. Think about it if there is less travel related to work, what that might do in terms of our carbon footprint, in terms of sustainability in terms of inclusion um, for for Canadians with disabilities who have long wanted to work from home more often, well, maybe this is gonna result in a mindset shift or a mind, you know, in terms of how we think about that, in terms of, of not stigmatizing people who are working from their homes, but in actually recognizing it as being normal and and, and productive. So. I, I think we should really focus on addressing people's insecurities uh, at this time to help in, in, encourage them to re-enter the economy. Um, th- we've never seen something where the Canadian economy effectively shut down overnight before. Uh, the fact that it has gotten back to where it is today in terms of functioning is actually quite remarkable. Uh, think if this had happened 20 years ago uh, and we had had phones and faxes or 25 years ago say um, and and what the impact would have been so I think we're taking for granted a lot of the advancements we've seen over the last couple of decades in terms of technology um, and we actually have to use this opportunity to do more finally on Creative, uh, you know, their destruction, uh, there's something called the Creative Destruction Lab, CDL, which started at U of T, but it's one at Dalhousie University and Memorial in Atlanta, Canada. And it's, a, it's across, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's really important in terms of the startup ecosystem for the country. During this time, our startup ecosystem is really imperiled. And th- now it's going to be really important for governments and business to recognize the importance of that startup community and to not abandon it at this critical time. And so governments are, you know, I think this is gonna be an area of important focus uh, and that is that we help backstop our startup community through this because they are going to be the, the, the drivers of change on which we will depend for our prosperity in the future.
0: That's fantastic, Scott. Actually, one of the questions we didn't get to from the audience dealt with startups, so we're glad that like, you touched on that. So, Rick, we're ending with you, and there's oh. definitely a, a wave of optimism. For, um, for, okay, Scott wants to get back in.
2: Just one thing, one thing, you called me a politician. I was very <laughs> proud to be a politician for 22 years, but I'm no longer a politician, just, you, just correct.
0: Me. Yeah, we know you return to your business roots.
2: And and so, yeah,
0: like, you know, Rick, like Scott, you've been inside business, inside politics. This question started with you really about profound changes. Five, 10 years from now, Rick, what do you think we'll be talking about? What are the lessons learned? What profound changes will we be living through?
3: First of all, I won't repeat what uh, Linda and Scott have just said. I agree with many of the observations that they've made. Uh, So I won't recite the same list. But I, I think we're going to, I referred to it a little bit earlier, I think we're going to invest more in rural uh, and less urban residents mm-hmm. and more in people who work in those kind of settings. Um, uh, because I think we're discovering that those ha- have more value than we probably think. And, uh, you know, one of my, uh, one of my family members is a teacher, uh, who teaches in a rural area. Uh, I live in an urban area and our son, uh, you know, made the transition to online schooling quite, quite easily. And it seems to be actually working. Um, uh, you know, so who knows, we'll see, uh, you know, what the marks look like next year. Uh, but, uh, you know, it seems to be functioning. But in a rural setting, uh, my, my brother-in-law tells me that, uh, you know, half the homes have acceptable video connections like what we're talking about. And, and distance learning is actually possible. And this is in rural eastern Ontario. And the other half don't. Uh, so right away, uh, and ec- basically an economic cleavage that exists there. So we, we can s- settle that. We can address that with technology. I think that's one of the things we're probably going to do as a country is invest in that area. I think that um, most of the West, Western democracies, uh, Canada, States, and so on, Europe, are going to invest in reshoring. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the wake-up calls we've had about supply chains and particularly the just-in-time nature of a global supply chain uh, has reminded us that that's not always a good idea for every single thing that you actually need for daily life. And even in the relationship between Canada and the States, which is, you know, famously one of the closest in the world historically and so on, uh, we had some shocks uh, there. Uh, and, uh, you know, so those are wake-up calls. I think that we're going to see uh, it will take more dollars uh, per unit to cause us to buy from abroad than it used to. Uh, And that gap has been narrowing anyway. So I think we're going to see things brought closer to home where we have more exposure uh, or less risk, I guess is a better way of putting it, to what's going on. Uh, failing that, where we do buy offshore, we'll probably stockpile more, we'll probably not be as cl- inclined to just in time, we'll probably warehouse more stuff of uh, things that we don't. We, we want to make sure we're not going to run out of in 30 or 60 or 90 days as opposed to what time's the truck coming today so I can finish making this automobile. Um, You know, so I think that's gonna happen. But I I would bet that of all the things, we haven't really talked about it because it's not really a business thing, except if you're in a particular sector, but I think one of the most profound things we're probably gonna do as a country, one of the most expensive public policy changes we're gonna make is how we deal with elderly uh, and care situations, Uh, because that's obviously for Canada. If this, if this story is kind of a, in the process of ending in some fashion, even if it phases out over a longer period of time and has more waves, if, if what we know now is most of what happens, uh, the biggest tragedy here will be what happened with elderly people uh, in long-term, in government care. Uh, you know, if, if not in government-operated facilities, at least government-regulated facilities. Uh, and this has been a huge wake-up call to how badly that situation has uh, has not been designed and, and practiced. Uh, so I think there's going to be some huge changes there, and uh, it's probably a big economic opportunity for people who want to invest in that, provided that you know we can get the regulatory, starting with who owns that facility. Is it going to get all brought into the public sector, which some people will advocate right away? Uh, or is it going to remain a hybrid of public and private services? but where the quality of them, really, whether they're public or private, uh, is raised quite significantly. I think that's going to be one of the big changes. Um, I think that basically mobility, transportation, transit, uh, you know, um, would you want to get on a crowded subway train today anywhere? In, well, there's not crowded subway trains in very many places in Canada. Would you? Are you ready to get onto a crowded subway train in Toronto or Montreal? Uh, I, I bet not. Uh, and... Uh, you know, or a crowded plane for that matter. Uh, So what are we going to do about that? There's, you know, I mean, there there we're probably, we can't really redesign those things to, you know, give people six feet of distance on a subway car uh, or a bus really. Uh, So what are we going to do? I mean, that that is back to, you know, hoping that there's a cure or a treatment uh, or a vaccine. Uh, that deals with this which we haven't really talked about very much here and all we can do is really hope uh, for that i think people are being actually a little bit too optimistic but we want to end on an optimistic note so i won't go down that path anyway i think those changes that we've all been talking about are all opportunities for good as well as for uh as as well as for bad and i think we're uh, a country and a people who uh, like to think positively and constructively about these things and i think there are going to be a lot of positive changes come out of this
0: Thank you, Rick. So again, I think a nice way of ending with lots of questions, but a lot of change that's going to come. I just really want to thank our guests today for taking, you know, an hour out of their day, their busy schedules, for sharing it with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people that were listening to this program and will continue to listen. I just want to start again for Linda Nazareth from Relentless Economics and a fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute. Linda also has a podcast starting on June 1st. Linda and it's the work in, in the future podcast and you can get that at relentlesseconomics.com huge thank you Linda to Mr. Bryson the Honorable Scott Bryson no longer a politician now uh, you know a, a very important person vice chair of investment and corporate banking at the Bank of Montreal just a huge thank you so nice to, to reconnect with, uh, with Scott for Rick I just so great to, to connect with you uh, Rick Anderson from Ernst Clip of, of and just thank you for this great inputs from everybody on behalf of my partners Canada 2020, Center for Global Progress, and my colleagues at IFSD, many thanks. Stay healthy and look forward to reconnecting with you in the future. Thank you all. Thanks, Kevin.
2: Thanks, everybody. Thank Thank you. you, thank you.